brothies. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening. To the Outstanding Ohioan Show. Thank you for the Outstanding Ohioan Show. Hosted by my daddy. Hosted by my daddy. Hello, thank you for tuning in to the Outstanding Ohioan Show. This is Ron Silico, and we are on episode 63. Today, as promised, we've got part two of the interview with Dr. Duke Pesta, and today we're going to talk about some of the solutions to Common Core, including a project that's near and dear to his heart that he's founded. So, Dr. Duke, welcome to the show again. Hey, thanks for having me back. Yes. Uh, some Something before we get get into what I just introduced as our theme today. Uh, you've been you've been a lot even on the mainstream media today as well as your all your own podcasts and such, uh, including recently Glenn Beck. Something that really strikes me and impresses me is what a great public speaker you are. You're you're engaging, you're persuasive, you you, you tell great stories, you're animated. Can you can you share with the audience what in what in your background has helped you become the kind of public speaker that you are? You know, I, you know, I, the older I get, the more I begin to think it's, it's like a lot of other things. You, if if you have a knack for it, if you have a gift, that gift can be refined, um, and it's nothing you can you have any control over. Uh, I never took any. I never took a formal communication speech. I've never had any uh, rhetorical training. I've never been trained as a speaker. But it's one of those things that uh, you know if you. If, I've always been an ideas guy. Ideas have always moved me. I've always been uh, a sort of a passionate advocate for ideas. Uh, and so uh, I guess I've been fortunate. I would say that 25 years of teaching in a university classroom has certainly refined those skills. Um, you know, you find out uh, – one thing. One of the nice thing about being a college professor is that you, you get older from year to year, but the kids that you're teaching stay the same age. So I'm getting, you know, I went from my 30s to my 40s and so on. Uh, and every year I got one year older and every year I'm teaching 20-year-olds. And so after a while you begin to understand that all 20-year-olds are more or less the same. And so um, if you're going to get ideas across to them, you've got to contend with the short attention span. You've got to contend with the fact that they need animation and passion from you, not just arguments. And you've got to contend with the fact that they're skeptical. And I think uh, over, over 25 years of filling uh, of, of feeding kids important information in a short window of time it's allowed me to become a little bit more professional i think about it uh, something that i've also noticed in your presentations and if you can kind of speak to this as a as a general principle of your your teaching in the classroom is i i've, I've looked at your ratings on ratemyprofessors.com i've heard a little i read a lot about the contract that you have with students talk Talk about the environment that you're trying to promote in your classroom, because I, I think it does help with what you said with the intention and the engagement. Well, it's interesting you mentioned Rate My Professors. I don't think I've looked at Rate My Professors in a dozen years. So <laughs> I have the vaguest idea. I'm, I'm almost afraid to look. At what's it, up. it actually comes up in top five when I Google search your name. Yes, I'm not <laughs> surprised. That, I think that happens for a lot of teachers. I just don't look at it. Yeah. I, I don't think it's a terribly accurate reflector simply because uh, – Kids who don't even take your classes. I know teachers who've had uh, reports submitted from them who kids who never even took the classes. So I don't think it's terribly accurate. But that having said that, I don't know what they said about me. But um, I think uh, to answer your question more specifically um, about 
what I'm facing in the classroom. I had this come up in class just yesterday. I'm trying to teach Shakespeare to a group of senior and junior English majors. Uh, the only experience they had with Shakespeare was freshman year of high school, where they had three-week segment on Shakespeare, and they didn't even talk about the play. They just watched a movie. So no, it's no surprise to me why these kids think they don't like Shakespeare, because the high school teachers don't even know how to teach it. So these juniors and seniors, <clears throat> they come to my class, and I, I, it's not, I don't just have to teach them how to read Shakespeare. That's hard, to sit down with a group of kids who don't understand history, who know nothing about poetry, who struggle with Elizabethan language. I have to teach them how to read Shakespeare, but before I can do it, and this is the hard part, I have to unteach them what they've been taught at college. I literally have to take from them, or, or at least get them to question, the utility and the fairness of approaching books from a Marxist or a feminist or an environmentalist progressive lens. These kids haven't been taught, and this is the, this is the crime of modern contemporary university education. We are not teaching our students to read complicated books to understand what the book says. We are teaching kids to read everything we put in front of them, whether it's Shakespeare or whether it's a sociological laundry list. We're, we're asking kids to read things first by making feminist or Marxist assumptions. You're not reading books to find out what they say. You're reading books to pull apart the patriarchy or to deconstruct capitalism or to point out the crimes against the environment. And so to teach them Shakespeare, I have to first convince them that they can't read it, and that that's easy enough to do. I'll ask them questions, and they, they, they can't tell me what they've just read. Number two, then I have to ask them, okay, you, didn't, you admit you don't know what it says, but your first instinct was to turn it into a feminist argument. So once I can get them to see that they, A, don't know how to read, and B, are substituting actual reading for political readings, most of them are then recognizably humble enough. They realize, okay, so there's a problem here. At that point, and it takes at least a month of the first semester before I could get them to the point where they see that enough to realize, okay, it's time to start paying attention to what Shakespeare said and listening to Dr. Pesto when he talks about Shakespeare's culture and worldview and how those things are how you understand Shakespeare's play, not through our modern political activist lenses. And then the second part of that, you're, can you talk a little bit about the contract and what, what are the main tenants that with, with that? Sure, and, and you know, it's a contract only in the, the most tenuous form of the word. Is it legally binding? I doubt it. Uh, is, is it, it. It is absolutely something, even though the kids sign it, that if the university wants to ignore it, they're going to ignore it. The university doesn't really care about the, those kind of things. But it, it does at least signal for my students the seriousness with which I'm approaching the subject. And so on the first day of class, I have them fill out a, uh, a series of statements I make and a series of warnings I give them. Uh, and uh, they're all pre predicated on trigger warnings, right? That this, this academically bankrupt idea that we must warn kids of anything that might offend them in books before they ever open the book and give them a chance to opt out if something is scary and they don't like it. But I've come to realize that um, given how, how feckless and given how politicized ideological university investigations are, university investigators don't care about the truth. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I'm going to say this definitively. The, the, the half-wit diversity officers who we employ, who have no college teaching background, who are not themselves teaching and publishing scholars, who have the prerogative to investigate professors for things said in classroom. It's a complete sham kangaroo court. So knowing that, knowing that a student complaint, however irrational, however illogical, however lacking in proof, 
will get their attention and cause an investigation, an invasive investigation, even if, again, there's no evidence for it, I've decided to give the kids a series of, of, of ultimatums, basically. Among them, if, if you are triggered by free speech, you got to drop the class. I'm telling you, right, I'm doing what the progressives say we should do. I'm telling you. That in this class, people are going to make are going to argue things that you don't like, and if you don't want to hear it, go away. I tell them if you have a problem with inveterate heterosexuality, go away. I said I teach literature that was written before you were born. There are no play Shakespearean plays celebrating gay marriage. There are no transgender characters in Milton's Paradise Lost. Uh, if you don't want to be, uh, if you don't want to have to study books that operate from the premise that heterosexuality is normative or that um, uh, free markets or merit-based institutions are useful, that patriotism might be a good thing, then then don't waste my time. I said, we're going to talk freely, and if you don't want to be here, don't be here. I'm telling you at the front that this is what the books are going to say. This is how we're going to approach them. You're free to speak your mind. If you disagree with those things, say it. But if you think, and this is a big one, and I ask them to sign this too, if you feel entitled to censor the thoughts or words of other people or make them speak a language that conforms to your preferences, <clears throat> then you need to drop the course. So in fact, that to me, you call yourself, I make it clear to my students, you can use any pronoun you want. You can call yourself any stupid nickname you want. I, as the professor, I'm willing to call you those things, however ridiculous it is. But you don't have the right to force the student sitting next to you to alter her language to fit your premises. So, for instance, if you're a raging feminist uh, social justice warrior and the young woman sitting next to you keeps using the word mankind, you have every right in class to tell her that you find mankind offensive. You have no right to tell her to stop using it. And if she keeps using it, that's her choice. I'm not going to censor her for it. So those kind of things, uh, things that you and I would think as university people should be the most obvious starting places for any kind of free discussion in a classroom. That's how bad it's gotten, is that now obvious things like that have to be uh, contractualized with these kids. Wow. Well, it's great that you're doing it because even though you shouldn't have to do that, um, what is said on RateMyProfessors.com is that students, the most common comment is they appreciate the diversity of opinions and worldview. Well, that's, that is good. And I, I think, and, and notice, this is what gets me all the time. Um, students appreciate diversity of worldview because the university doesn't, uh, because many of our university faculty members don't. And it's a very small, I think it's a very small, relatively speaking, group of students who are so dogmatic and so ideologically charged that they want to shut down everybody else's speech. However, rather than defend the 90% of college kids of all political backgrounds who are open to listening to the other side, uh, the university sides with certain kinds of professors and a very small number of ideologically charged students to force the rest of campus to be wary of what they say, to bite their tongue, to, um, uh, to refrain from talking about certain issues. And if we could you know, take that radical minority and force them to become more open-minded. I think universities would go a long way to fixing some of their problems. Right. Uh, jump into your free, Freedom Project Academy. Uh, I'm very interested. What, what was your tipping point? Because this was a huge investment of time and resources for you and others. What was your tipping point to, to found this academy? Well, <clears throat> Freedom Project Academy is a complete online 
homeschool from kindergarten through high school. And what we do is we have live teachers teaching live classes in real time through the computer to your kids right in the home. Safe, no bullying, no, no government intrusion, no stupid standardized tests. A classical education brought into your living room by real teachers teaching in real time. And we can do individual classes for the mom and dad who homeschools, or we can do the entire curriculum. We're fully accredited. So a degree from Freedom Project Academy online gets you into any college in the country. Having said that, your question is a good one. About 10 years ago, well, I, I have known almost ever since I was in grad school that uh, being a humanities professor who wants to teach great books, it was becoming more and more impossible to do it. It was becoming harder and harder. The kids were, become, were coming to school less prepared to read and think about complicated ideas and more political. And so it, it was pretty clear that if I was going to, you know, having a student in class one semester of college isn't going to be enough to push, to push back against that especially since the vast majority of pretty much all my other humanities colleagues were going the other way, uh, pushing more radical politics on students. So getting involved with education at younger ages, younger grades, did, did suggest itself to me as the only way you're really going to have a chance by the time get, kids get to college to try to ensure that some of our kids, at least, have been broadly educated, humanely educated, they're familiar with the conversational historical documents of Western culture that they you put a book in front of them, they have at least a fighting chance to be able to sit down and read it uh, and read through the politicization that they're likely to get in their classrooms. Okay. Uh, you, you mentioned accreditation. What, what was that process like? Because there's such pushback to anyone who's not, not in the, the, the establishment model of schooling. Well, the good news is that there are a lot of accreditation models. Uh, organizations. The public schools, of course, despite garbage curriculum and underperforming teachers and kids who are way behind their grade levels, uh, they're never asked to be accredited at all, right? The, the American government schools, the only accreditation process is, do you, are you willing to do what the Federal Department of Education says or not? That's about the, the, the extent of it. So there are a lot of alternative accreditation systems, uh, be pri primarily because you have so many Christian or Catholic or private schools. And uh, the nice thing is, is that we there are organizations that will accredit you uh, based on the quality of your classes, not the ideology or the religion or the philosophy behind them. And so our classes check all the boxes. They're rigorous. They're high achieving. Uh, we have uh, a very accelerated courses. We have them reading important books. And we demonstrably can show that our kids are, are not only getting into college but doing well. So accreditation wasn't a big problem for us. Okay. Uh you know, we've, we've kind of talked about a lot of the isms in our two conversations. So I wanted to kind of flip it because, you know, for example, people care about the environment, but the, and there's different ways to protect the environment. There's the progressive viewpoint, which is regulating everything that walks, crawls, or flies. Uh, what, what's your approach when, to your students that, that have a care about pollution in the environment? What, how do you approach that? Well, caring about anything uh, in a knee-jerk emotional way is, is inevitably going to get you in trouble. It's going to get you in trouble, uh, and it's going, to, it's going to get you to commit and, and believe things that aren't necessarily true and embrace courses of action that are destructive. And so I, I'm very Socratic about the environment. The first thing I ask kids is uh, name a single climate scientist. Just name one credentialed climate scientist. And, and I, I, I can't think of a single student in a single class over the last 10 years who could name one, not one. 
I said, okay, well, okay, names are hard. I said, well, make a climate argument. Give me a basic argument about why you think the planet is warming or why human beings are responsible. And guess what? They can't do it. And so I said, okay. So you claim that science is true, right? And, and you know that in science, as a, in scientific discourse, you have to be able to not just make an argument, but you have to be able to verify and replicate that argument in the laboratory. I said, how are you going to do that when you can't even name a scientist or you can't name an argument? And that at least gets them to thinking about this. And I said, okay, well, name somebody, name the most important people associated with climate change. And they always inevitably go to Al Gore. I know Al Gore. Okay, okay, fair enough. Uh, what, what did Al Gore major in in high school? Excuse me, in college. What was Al Gore's college major, I asked them. And they look at me puzzled because they have no idea. I said, you would think, wouldn't you, that it was biology or chemistry or physics? I said, no, he was a theology major. So he majored in religious studies. So what, what in your mind, what qualifies Al Gore to be, in, in your experience, the face of the climate change movement? So he started asking him questions like that, and I notice what I haven't done. I have not said there is no such thing as climate change. I have not said man-made global warming is bunk. I haven't said any of those things. I'm just getting them to stop and look at the so-called authorities. And you know the other funny thing about it is the vast majority of our kids aren't learning climate change in their science classes. A biology professor or a chemistry professor usually has other things to do. Our kids are being taught climate change by English professors, by history professors, by sociology professors. Uh, disciplines that have no training in what's going on in the environment. So it's the it's the woke English professor, it's the progressive historian who's forcing these ideas on them. And in short order, at the very least, I get them to see that they're what they think they believe is not bound in anything. And most of the kids are honest enough to at least become agnostics then and say, okay, you're right. I mean, while I'm willing to believe science, I, maybe I ought to educate myself a little better. And that's about as much as you can do. Okay. Uh, I, I know you're up against some time here, but the final question I had today was, what are the top three to five things you recommend parents do to take charge of their children's education? And kind of through the lens of, if they can't do this, what could they do instead? Well, the first thing you, got, you said, it take charge of it. You're in charge of it. If you're going to send your kids to American public schools, I do not advise that. But if you're going to send your kids for the first 15 years of their life, to government schools with teachers who are trained to largely reject your worldview, uh, then you're, in, you're asking for trouble. But if you're going to do that, then you need to recognize that you, you have a moral and an ethical and an intellectual obligation to find out what your kids are learning to sit down with them when they come home from school and ask them, okay, so tell me what you learned in history today. Okay, show me how you learned how to do division and subtraction and multiplication. Uh, tell me a little bit about what you learned in bio your, your freshman biology class in high school. You're going to find really quickly that the kids are going to tell you things that are going to make you want to pull your hair out. If you leave the kids in those government schools, then you're going to have to actively spend a little time, three or four times a week, showing them alternatives. Okay, so you learned that the founding fathers were all racist, sexist, bigot, homophobes. Okay, now let me show you something else about the founding fathers. Did you know that the founding fathers were this or that? So you've got to, you've got to play devil's advocate with these kids. The vast majority of our moms and dads have come to the conclusion that it is the, it is the responsibility of strangers to educate our kids. Uh, and so... That's why we're in the pickle we're in. So number one, you've got to be in charge of it. Number two, spend time with them in the evenings if you've got them in a government school. Number three, seriously consider supplementing their education with um, experiences and, and material that goes way beyond 
the narrow scope of what the government is doing. Be, be willing to take them to museums, take them to plays, um, sit down with them and read a book that's not maybe maybe over the summer read a couple books with them that aren't part of the canonical progressive uh, English class that they're going to get in their government school to show them alternative ways of doing things. In other words, all of these suggestions can be boiled down to one. Uh, even though your kid's in a government school, you are responsible for their education. 20 years, 30 years down the road, if those kids are voting to undermine the republic, they are complicit in silencing the First Amendment, they are pushing to get rid of the Second Amendment, they uh, are, are highly pro-socialist, and they can't feed their families, they can't become entrepreneurs, they can't generate wealth. That's our fault as parents, it's not their fault. And so if you're not giving them an education that allows them to sustain themselves, sustain their families, and sustain their country, then you fail them. And the only way to prevent that is to make the education of your children a much higher priority than we're doing. Well, great. We'll leave it. We'll leave it there, so you can get to your other appointment. Uh, it's been a tremendous pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much. Well, you know what? Uh, I appreciate the opportunity, and uh, uh, as this crazy world of education keeps revolving, let's you know maybe six months down the road talk again. And uh, let me give a shout out. Uh, the new venture, and you and I talked about it before the show, is our podcast. Uh, very proud of it. It's a it's an education program uh, that is unlike anything on the radio or a podcast or on TV today. We cover all educational issues between preschool all the way to graduate school. It's called The Dr. Duke Show. It's absolutely free of charge to subscribe to. You can go to iTunes or any of the podcasting systems. You'll find it, The Dr. Duke Show. And uh, go ahead and take a look at it. It's a once-a-week show. It's about an hour long. And it will really, really inform you about what's happening in every aspect of and every facet of American education. And we'll certainly put that in the show notes so people have that as a reference point, as well as some of the YouTube videos where you've talked about Common Core. Awesome. Okay. Well, thank you so much. Thanks, Ryan. I look forward to talking to you sometime down the road. Absolutely. Have a great okay, day. Have a good day. You too. Bye-bye. Well, thank you for tuning in to the Outstanding Ohioan Show. This was Episode 63, Part 2 of our interview with Dr. Duke Pesta. Really encourage you, if you've got an interest in learning about what Common Core stands for and is about. Uh, the podcast is great. It's often humorous, uh, but also there's there's a sense of reality there and what, what people are talking about in education at, at all levels, as he alluded to. So thank you for listening and have a great day.